Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Sometimes the things that you try so hard to make work just cause so much stress in your life and you don't get it or you do get it whatever but the things that you that fall in your lap the opportunities come out of nowhere mm-hmm. that we feel like well i didn't really work for that i don't deserve yeah. that or that's yeah. too easy but actually do you know what i mean you take opportunities when they come and set yourself goals but be flexible Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to comedian and presenter Tom Deacon. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all-round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Balancing Acts is made in association with the comedy crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Tom has been performing stand-up comedy for the last 12 years. He's notched up four Edinburgh solo shows. And alongside performing stand-up, he's presented for the likes of BBC Two, BBC Radio One, the Capital FM Breakfast Show, and on YouTube football channel Copper 90. Tom has also made guest appearances on BBC Two's The Rob Brydon Show, Dave's One Night Stand, and ITV Two's Fake Reaction. He's currently the host of F1 Esports Pro Series. This was a really great conversation. We dive in deep on Tom's comedy career and how he got into presenting and he talks about how he signed very early on in his career to Avalon. Tom describes the struggle between transitioning from club sets to an hour's show at Edinburgh Fringe and uh, the negative impact that bad reviews of, of his show had on him and on his overall Edinburgh Fringe run. He breaks down his writing process on stage and the pressure of performing on TV when you only have one take. Tom talks about his desire to travel the world in order to have more to say on stage and 
and generate material. He also opens up the challenge of of being a presenter and how that means sometimes he has to hold back on his stand-up and and how that can in some ways affect his creativity. He describes the experience of gigging with James Acaster early on in his career and watching him die on stage twice in a row, but how basically that led James to sort of figure out his path and he, he sort of said you've got to put yourself out there and you have to go through those experiences of dying regularly to walk on the edge. Tom recounts his time as a presenter at BBC Radio 1 and talks about the idea of sacrificing parts of your dreams or creativity in order to achieve some balance and happiness in your life. He says it's okay to accept that the goals you set out to achieve in hindsight aren't actually now what you want. Tom also highlights the power of saying no to opportunities. We discuss how to deal with haters and social media comments, the importance of being proud and happy with your own work. Tom also describes what it's like interviewing huge stars and how to keep your shit together during that process. And he describes the experience of traveling around Europe as a presenter for Copper 90 and loads more. Tom drops nuggets of gold throughout this episode. It's uh, informative, inspirational, And uh, just, yeah, super interesting to hear his journey. As always, if you like this episode, if you like Balancing Acts in general, firstly, if you haven't done already, please do subscribe and rate and review us on Apple. It really does help and make the world of difference. So without further ado, over to Tom. Perfect. Were you just at a point, because I, I did uh, a little uh, sneaky scroll for your Instagram. I saw that you started gigs again. You started gigging again. And then obviously lockdown two happens. Um, and it's a bit of a fucker, isn't it? Were you, were you sort of like gearing up? Do you have a load of gigs in the diary? Uh, I did, yeah. There was one uh, really looking forward to, like a theatre gig again. And then a few more sort of theatre places that hopefully can do half the capacity um, and then so keep it socially distanced. But yeah, pretty much. And then also I was working in Germany uh, every two weeks. So uh, I can't do that now. Uh, Were you gigging over there? Quarantine. Um, yeah, I did, do you know what? I did do a gig. And then a week and a half later, I got a message from the promoter saying, oh, by the way, someone in the audience tested positive, And now we've got Corona as well, the hosts of the show, who I shared a microphone with. Oh, uh, shit. I got, <laughs> I got a test. I was negative. But you're... Uh, yeah, so, so then I stopped gigging in Berlin when I'd go to do a presenting job. But it was mad. Like, you could go over to Berlin and they have an English comedy speaking set of gigs, which are really, really good fun. And I was really looking forward to having that. And then, yeah, for safety reasons, I was a bit like, ah, oh, probably knock that on the head. So, um, so yeah, to answer your question, um, yeah, there were some gigs in, but then I do presenting work as well. So I'm yeah. very lucky that I've had some stuff like f1 and esports to do did you kick off uh, your career with stand-up and then off the back of that you got into presenting yeah uh i was in exeter i was at university down there um and uh started doing some new material nights well i actually wasn't even that i went straight in and did the middle spot so did a 10 minute when i didn't have 10 minutes and then yeah you just learn sink or swim and then the promoter was like if you want to come back in three or four months and be better then come back and that's that's what i did and then from that how was that 10 minutes the, did you did you, did you die or was it all right no do you know what the, the weird thing is i i've only died on my whole once like properly like this is a death oh mate fair it, play yeah it, and i don't say that as a brag because actually i feel like you need to die to then 
come back, like shed that, go, that doesn't work. I've always managed to get by so I can have an okay gig. Um, (laughs) But that doesn't mean you get closer to like the best that you've possibly been because you can get a little bit lazy, like, yeah, I'll make it work. That's kind of my style. Um, But then from that, that promoter there said, oh, have you seen this young student comic of the year thing? And that's what led me to go up to Edinburgh to win that competition. And that's pretty much what kickstarted the career. But I'd done about 15 gigs maybe, and then went up to Edinburgh and then, and then, yeah, and then won that award. But that didn't make life easy. I still had to apply for like, can you do five minutes? It was about proving you can do five. You can prove that you can do 10 minutes and then finally getting a paid gig. So there was so you a journey did, to go on, yeah. So you did the whole uh, open, open mic circuit for a while before you went through to pro gigs? Uh, well, there is that open mic in London that yeah. they, they often talk about. I, I've performed at them, but no, I didn't stick around there f- for long uh, because I'd won the Chortle Student of the Year Award. Um, I then got to do a five or a 10, a profession, uh, like a paid comedy night okay. and then proved that I was good enough. So then it was like, all right, cool. We'll book you in in six months time to do a 20. And then I was in that way. So I didn't stick around on an open mic circuit for very long fantastic yeah i like i think yeah it goes both ways doesn't it like with um open mic gigs you you learn your craft etc but some people say you can pick up bad habits as well if, if you're in if you're in that scene for too long you know 100 and i think there's a fair few comics you get comfortable um and that's brilliant because then you're you're learning how to perform but you're performing to why do we say it's quite an odd night they paid nothing to get in <laughs> and yeah. uh, the audience just doesn't come with that mentality that you're professional. It's a weird thing. You've got to be, look professional and act professionally to then hopefully get those paid nights. Whereas the open mic circuit, and I'm not knocking it, you just stay at that level if you, you, you've got to seek further than it, but they're very useful. Does that, yeah. if that makes sense? Yeah, totally. And so how long into you pursuing stand-up did you do your first solo Edinburgh show? Because I know you've, you've got four under your belt now. Yeah, four that I would, uh, <laughs> that are, you know, not critically acclaimed. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> You'll be both. You'll be both. Uh, when did I do it? Well, here's the thing. Here's, the, here's what happened. Uh, through being in Exeter, there was um, Jane who... A former husband ran up the creek. Okay. Uh, Malcolm Hardy. So Jane Hardy. She said, look, you're in London now. You're living there. And I gave myself a year. Uh, I had enough to last a year um, after uni. And it was try and get signed or, or, or make it. Make enough so I don't have to get a job. Um, and I finally got a gig uh, up the creek. And after Edinburgh winning an award, Avalon was sniffing about, sniffing about like a couple of geezers. And uh, they said, look, where, this is the thing with an agent. I was like, you've got to get signed. That'll help your career out. And then I sent through a list of all the gigs I had, some open mic, some that were like three months from now. And I said, these are all my gigs. Which ones would you like? There might have been five. And they said, up the creek, 10 minutes. And I was on, Stephen K. Amos was hosting it on a Sunday night. They used to have a band on as well it was brilliant nice Uh, and i went on and you know those gigs where you just go that couldn't have gone any better this 10 minutes of bulletproof stuff that i had just rips it for no good reason and it was almost a well surely that guy's got to stay on it was almost an encore for a 10 minute in the spot wow and uh and i left and then avalon guy that i signed with was just like i need to sign you 
like that's it. So it's very, I, I did the graft as in, I did as many gigs as I possibly could. Mm. And then I thought that was it. That was life sorted. Here we go. Paid gigs. Here they come. And I remember a week later, I said, now that I've signed, where's, where's the paid gigs? And he went, well, there aren't any. So I suggest you go and get a part-time job. So uh, <laughs> it's a crash down to reality. Yeah. And then I got a presenting job. Uh, I, I auditioned for it. And then from that, he said, well, let's hit the ground running. You've won this competition. You've got to go back up. So I did the comedy zone. And then the following year, I did my first hour, but I wasn't really ready for it. Maybe I had half an hour of decent stuff. Okay. And I had to add on 25 minutes of shit <laughs> to fill it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know that. So, and, and where were you performing? Were you doing a paid venue or was it a free fringe? A paid venue. Free fringe didn't exist then but not like it does now. So it was a Pleasance, uh, the cellar okay. uh, in the courtyard. And it was, uh, hey, here's how much it will cost you if you sell out 100%. You'll only lose two and a half grand. Uh, yeah. Do you still want to do it? And I was like, yeah, this sounds brilliant. You back yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, so uh, that was the first hour. Uh, it was called Indecisive. Um, and I, I don't even do any of the material from it now. But I was trying to do the Edinburgh thing, like here's the narrative, rather than I guess just just be funny. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, learned a lot from it. But I don't think I was ready for it. Uh, but I'm glad I did it because then you realise a whole load of stuff that you wouldn't do if you waited another year to do it when you thought you were right. Ready. Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it can be tough, can't it? Transitioning from doing club sets to then doing an, an hour in Edinburgh because, like you said. When club sets is all about just being funny, jokes, gags, etc. And then when you're in Edinburgh, there's this whole other thing of like focusing on the narrative and having a running theme going through the show. It's uh, go on, sorry. It's almost like, hey, funny is the secondary thing here. Yeah, yeah, we get yeah. it. You're funny, but what are you? What are you telling us about 2020? How are you woke? Because like, tell me more about this woke idea that I can go away and say, oh my god, you have to see that show. It's incredible. It's so touching. It's heartwarming. And people will be like, is it funny though? It's a com comedian. No, no, no. That's very different to his uh, club set. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I, I never really found that balance until the third show I did, right. uh, which was about completing a sticker album. And I felt like that was a proper show and it was funny and it was the best one I did. So yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, it's going back to what you were saying. It's sort of like, uh, did it make you laugh? No, but it made me think. You know, I came away. I read, yeah. Lots to think about. I pondered on that show. But you see, the thing is, I think I'm a, a every man, like in Edinburgh, I'd always get like a cab and then or, because it was chucking it down always. Yeah. And I was like, do you know what? I can't deal that for my, my um, <laughs> well-being. So I will, I will get a cab and then I will stay dry for longer. Uh, but the cabbies in, in Edinburgh are always like, but is it funny though? And I, I agree. It's like, do you want to go and just go to a show and have a laugh? Because there's other theatre-based shows you can see where you can really think and go, God, that really is existential. I really like that. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I guess I was trying to appeal a lot of the time to like, I just, this makes me laugh. This is what I'm going to talk about, which has definite merit uh, up in Edinburgh, but maybe it's not what the artsy side is, is looking for at times. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you just got to write what, what you want to write. How, talking of well-being, you were saying before, what was your experiences of Edinburgh outside of performing? Were you somebody who sort of like, loved it were you out on the piss every night or were you sort of like oh i just want to go home <laughs> uh, i was never the i just want to go home mm. uh, until i'd had another shitty review uh that that 
that kills a little bit. I think yeah. first Edinburgh, I expected everything else had come pretty quickly in my career that I was like, I've got this. I just go in with mentality. This is, this is going to be great and it'll be fine. And it didn't quite work that way. And I was like, oh, right. Um, so, so I learned from that. But yeah, I loved it. I was, I was fresh out of uni pretty much. Um, and I was trying to live like every other comic where you had no real obligations to be somewhere or do something. Turn up for this student radio interview to boost tickets for your show, but that's it. Um, yeah, yeah. And, but I, yeah, I loved it. I was, I was on um, trying to be the, the, the party goer, really. But okay. at the same time, there was one Edinburgh for my first hour, I believe. I was also doing a presenting job. And it felt like the rest of the day when I was supposed to be recovering from a hangover with LucasAid, uh, I was out presenting. So I was bemoaning that going, oh, you know, I'm getting paid for it when I look back at it. But I was like, oh, I want to be doing a stand-up life. I want to be like rolling out of the parties at, you know, 6 a.m., 7 a.m. But instead yeah. I've got to present. So I was kind of, kind of torn b- between that. Later on, uh, a few years later, when I did my next uh, hour, I just found it quite an, uh, it's not fun and you're getting through it. And in the first two weeks, you know whether this has been a waste of time this month or not. Right. And I, w- I would get caught up in that. And, uh, and also the pressure of having a big agent like Avalon, you had that idea, you knew whether you were the top dog early on and reviews were coming in or you weren't so i think i had a review within the first couple of days it took a week and a half to come out and it was a three star and then you, i spoke to my manager he was like well that's it don't worry we'll come back next year so i found oh, it to wow. be quite demanding for the fact that it, it yeah it feels like a loss when there was so much to gain from it and i look back on them and go actually i learned that learned that met some brilliant people um i live with chris ramsey and, and jimmy mcgee and ed gamble one year and that was like I've got very, very fond memories, but I think as a performer, it, it can be quite intoxicating and you really do have to have a good bunch of people around you to, to get you through. Yeah, I can understand that. And when you were writing the show, not just writing the show, but in terms of your approach to writing material in general, how do you go about writing? Do you, are you sort of, uh, a sort of sitting in front of a screen until ideas come to you or does it more of a, I don't know, ethereal process? Yeah, I, th- I think the latter, because for me, I'm not, I'm not a written comic. Some, I, oddly enough, I was talking to someone at a new material night last week and um, they said, oh, I write everything out word for word. Mm-hmm. And that's never really been my style of, because I feel an, like, I, I guess an energy. I get really excited when I've got a new idea and just throw it out there. And sometimes it doesn't work, but the moments that it does, that's where I get the best buzz from. And then I go, right, there's something in that. I've said it once, I'll go and say it again and iron out things and perfect it. Um, so, so I'm someone who writes while performing. And I know that sounds wanky, but, but I do because I go, here's what's funny. I know roughly there's some funny in that. I now have to sell it to the audience. And that's how I write material and it, build, it builds up. So I, all the, what I struggle with is having confidence to say it like I know that it's going to be really funny. So when I'm on stage, I can back out of stuff very quickly and go, no, 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 you, you don't know the wording for it. But I do, I know the emphasis, I've just got to sell it. And I'm, I guess I'm more of a performer in that way rather than a writer, which makes it hard for Edinburgh shows because I can see this is the A, point A, this is point B, this is C for the end of the show. How do I take them on the journey? So it's about repetition for me. Okay. 
and then I guess um, that would sort of make your style quite improv led as well. If you're sort of you're kind of just going with the spur of the moment. Uh, I think it was my default position. If if something's not working, well, you better make something funny. Uh, so mm. um, so I think it's just naturally become my style. Whereas okay. some people say, "Do you know what set list you're going to do?" So say I had a gig tonight, and it was for argument's sake, a Zoom gig, and I got 20 minutes, I will jot down the thing, maybe something that I know that will get the gig started, and then I'll leave some, a gap of where I could take it. But, it's, but then I'm, I'm clawing in my head for pieces that I know. They're pieces yeah, yeah. of material that I sell. Go, if, even if it's like three years old, that story, I'm like, yeah, but it fits perfectly next to that. That's where my brain will go. So it's not as if I'm improv like Ross Noble completely with what they give i'll i'll steer it where i want to go but uh but then i always jot things on my uh, my hand like right you've got to try this new joke and that seems like a good place to throw it in uh and if it doesn't get anything doesn't matter because then you'll go on to a bit you know so i, I kind of build up material through repetition and squeezing in little new bits okay and and do you record a lot of your sets at new material nights and play them back yeah, it's excruciating to listen back, but yes, yeah. I, I, I tend to I tend to do that. that that's the, the best way for me, um, and it becomes infuriating when I look back at the old material book, and it will say one word like uh, <laughs> Sudoku, and I'm like, Sudoku, Sudoku, what is that? And then I'll have to listen back to a recording, so and then I would tell it again, and then listen to another recording. And go, oh, that's not funny because this is the one bit that I've missed out to say. So in that right. respect. It would have been better if I'd have typed up all my material. The, the only time I've had to do that is to be on Dave's One Night Stand show where I had to write out every joke. And I think that was one of the most challenging things to do because I'm like, oh, this, it's, it doesn't read funny when I write stuff down. Right. But I know that that's the punchline. And, and it was quite challenging because I've never had to write out my material before. Um, and that was to be audited, checked, then I go, yes, you may say these things. And then wow. go on TV. Okay. And how was the experience of uh, performing on, on live, on TV, live TV shows? Did you feel an added pressure there? Uh, yes, because you knew that there was, there was only one take. You couldn't, you couldn't fuck it up is basically right. how it felt. But I, I got off on that adrenaline and I was like, you need to make this funny. This is your one shot. Go for okay. it. And it was great. It was really, really good experience. And, um, uh, yeah, I thought it went well. I haven't been asked back, but, uh, yeah, I thought it went well. <laughs> Time. There's still time, and I wanted to talk to you about the uh, the presenting side of things because obviously, as you're saying, there's you know you've got this whole separate career as a presenter. Was that something that came about once you were signed to Avalon? Did they sort of push you in that direction, or was it more of a, a natural process? Um, well, it's a bit of both. I don't think there, there was no pushing me. The only the only time I, I'll, I'll explain that they felt a little bit pushed, but mm. actually looking back on it and being reflective, it was actually really good for me financially uh another agent said i've seen this i think tom would be great for it passed it on to my agent and they said look presenting job is for bbc switch it's a teen uh show that they have or part of a channel um why don't you go along and i knew that at the time and this isn't a braggy bit but jack white had gone to an audition for it and so had uh simon bird don't know if they're still working either of those guys but, um anyway <laughs> I went along and I did the audition and I tried to prep for it. I was doing an interview with a supposed pop star 
Yeah. It was actually someone who worked in the office and I had to pretend we were doing a proper interview. And to be honest, I forgot the name that she told me about the band. And I was like, ah, oh. and I stopped the, inter- I, I kind of did it in my way of improv out of a situation. And I went, you're going to have to remind me your name. I know it was that good. It just went, I pulled, like I made, I, I sort of fluffed my way around it. Okay. And I got the job based on the fact that I could deal with a live situation. So that's what started. It was a month contract. It went well. We were doing a live show Monday to Friday, uh, interviewing people, coming up with content. And then, um, then they added another three months to it. And then this is the point I wanted to make. Uh, my agent at Avalon came to me and said, look, what, what do you want to do in your life? And I said, well, I really want to be a comic. I want to travel the world, go to different comedy clubs around the world, learn more stuff and have more to talk about on stage. And he, he said, do you want to stay in a five-star hotel or do you want to stay in a hostel? And I went, that is a very good question. I think five-star. And he said, brilliant. We'll take another year contract with them, save up, and then you can go. So was that pushy? No, it was while money's there to be made, do it. But I think my heart was really set on doing more stand-up comedy all all the time uh, and traveling the world and having a bit more to say when I was on stage. Uh, Although thinking about it now, I'd just be that person going, yeah, guys, when you've been backpacking like I have uh, (laughs) around Asia, uh, I I wouldn't have had so much to say. But uh, so yeah, so the presenting came along as an opportunity. It went well and that led to more things. So I tried to straddle both stand-up and presenting. And uh, at times, one would annoy the other or, or, or get in the way. But most of the time, it's sort of balanced out. Yeah, because I was going to say, I think you know, part of the struggle is when, you are, when you're sort of trying to progress down, uh, progress down a creative career path, inevitably towards the beginning bit, you're always going to need to be doing something else to, to pay for that, you know, to, to pay your bills, et cetera. But if you can find a way to do something that is kind of connected to your to, to your passion then it's a win-win really and do you find that your presenting has sort of informed or influenced your your comedy um it's a very good question I, I think well from that presenting of an online show uh dealing with things in the moment mm. i think has helped my skills as being a comic and creating something i, I love emceeing for that reason i'm hosting as a presenter you're hosting the audience and you're taking them on a journey, but you're not expected to be funny uh, as, as a presenter. And most of the lines I've ever been given are pretty hack. Uh, and so you're like, oh, well now I just look like a dick if I say this, but that's okay. Cause I'm a presenter where the cooler side was a stand-up comic. What are you going to say? How are you going to stick it to the man um, attitude? And so when I got onto radio one, which came along through that BBC work, uh, they were like, yes, we need just be more of you, more of that stand up edge to so bring that. And then I'd like, oh, can I talk about this? And they're like, whoa, 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 no, <laughs> this is Radio One. No, don't do, no, you can't say that. So I found that quite challenging. There was a part, a side of me that was a comic up and down the country. And then there was a part that had to be presenter, which couldn't quite be that guy that was over here. So I had to meet someone in the, in the middle. And that's creatively right. one of the toughest challenges which which i still well i don't have it as much today but you're trying you're you're trying to not be that person so you then become squeaky clean Mm. and then that's not really you so i i find now with my presenting i'm better with it but i can't be that comic tom deacon that wants to just go off on one you're right there's a script there's the structure you know so you you get better but i think for my stand-up comedy 
it's helped being fairly confident that I can talk about stuff on stage and not be flustered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the, for the presenting side is to know that if something's going wrong or I'm doing an interview that I've always can style it out. And that comes from the stand up side. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that imbues a lot of confidence, like you were saying before, in terms of being able to have those improv skills and just get out of anything. It's your, your escape yeah. mode if you need it. And um, do you think that um, your presenting side of things has had an impact on your comedy career? Is it easier to get gigs or on the flip side, because you said you had to go down more of a squeaky clean persona, has that sort of affected how you get booked or who books you? I don't, like I think with, with any industry, if, if you're good, the idea is it's a, a meritocracy that, that you kind of, um, that if you're good, you'll get booked. And, and that doesn't necessarily happen. <laughs> but certain promoters have always booked me because I've done a good job for them. And they're like, oh, yeah. you're solid, solid pair of hands. This is great. This is exactly what we want. Um, I think sometimes that the presenting side of being squeaky clean is that it hasn't allowed me at times to really push the envelope with my comedy and I will play it safe. And I think creatively that's the side that, that's the, um, uh, the bit that you try and have to avoid. Like it's great to be solid as a, as a, as a comedian, like a, a club set. Yeah. Mm. Smash that. That was really good. But I wasn't creative to take me to the next level because I'm just ticking the boxes. It, it mm-hmm. feels like, like how do I become the, the, you know, um, critically acclaimed Edinburgh show act by pushing the envelope and doing something weird, talking about my childhood in a really like woke way. And I, mm-hmm. I know I use the word woke twice now, but you, you, like, that's not what a club comic does. They're clever, but there's got to be that punchline. So how do I push it? Because I remember gigging years ago with, with say, James Acaster, gigged mm-hmm. with him twice. And I mean, the guy died on his hole twice in really? front of me and i oh. and i was like this guy like i really nice to chat to off stage but he's died twice like and i had to headline the night that he opened in manchester once and i and i was like don't worry safe pair of hands deacon steps up had a really good gig but look at our careers in terms of the creativity i think you need to be broken on stage and really look inwardly and go how do i lift how do i make this so unique how do i make it really interesting and so interesting for me that presenting side look i'm incredibly grateful uh for for all the things it's allowed me to do but i think it has hindered the stand-up side of me because i will always i will pull back i will just go hey i think we've pushed the envelope enough there because i've still got that bbc brain and on at times so uh yeah I, i guess we all feel like we've hit a ceiling and how do we experiment and go further than that? Um, I, th- I feel like there's, there's still potential with my stand-up t- to do that, which is exciting. Mm. But I feel like in the past, I've flip-flopped between and just balanced them out enough to be good enough. Got you. So is that something you want to explore more of? That's yeah, of I want to. Yeah, I, I guess so. Or, but then what would I say? Yeah. Now I'm kind of, you know, 35 next year it's like what are you going to say now tom like what are you going to be annoyed about <laughs> you're not you're yeah. not going to change the world but i think for I, I guess fear holds you back sometimes and when i was presenting and look that that pays the bills and it was good fun at times but i wasn't challenging myself 
And then the thought of challenging myself as a stand-up, we like, well, don't, because your image is over here with the presenting side. Your BBC, you can't go around doing that. And I'm like, but those are the best stories. Don't, mm. probably best to steer clear of that subject matter. Right. So I think that we, we hold ourselves back when we, with the fear of repercussions of what that's going to affect. And if I was just a stand-up who was, couldn't pay my bills from time to time, I feel like that would have pushed me in a different direction. But I don't know. Like, I'm right. very happy with my career, but I feel like it could, if we hold ourselves back and say, oh no, that's fine, that'll do, we don't grow. Yeah, so it's, like, it's almost like the idea of um, comfort holding you back. You know, when you've got a comfortable existence, you're not, you're not necessarily on that edge. Yeah. Definitely. But then there's also, I mean, this is a slightly different territory, but this idea of, you know, the tortured artist and, and how the media portray that. And, you know, if you really want to be a proper artist, you've got to be this tortured artist. Whether that is an unhealthy idea to pursue, you know, or even if it's necessary to create great art. I don't want to sound all wanky, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, like I said, um, my influences of, of when I was getting into the circuit, uh, went up to Edinburgh, stayed with Reginald D. Hunter, uh, saw the likes of some quite challenging comics like Steve Hughes, uh, like uh, Glenn Wolf, these, a lot of Canadian, Tom Stade, really like Tom Stade, brilliant comic, and um, just hanging around with them. And they, are, they live it to the edge. They party hard and they, they work hard. Hmm. And I remember I was telling my girlfriend last week, she's a teacher, she has a pension, I don't. You know, those are our worlds, right? Hmm. So, so I said to her, I'd quite like to be that artist that's just traveling on the road, writing a new show out every night, working the comedy scene uh, and living the life, a bit of a tortured artist. And she was like, well, you still can if you want, you just won't be with me. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's really hard to, because there's part of you as an artist, like um, a friend of mine, really good musician, lives in Berlin. He said, the death of an artist is a pram in the hallway. And I can't remember where that quote is come, has come from, but it's a visceral a, quote. Yeah, it's just, it's like, okay, I get the, can I be happy and, and find my way creatively and still live what I'd call a normal life? Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, just, I'm just in the middle. Like I'm, I'm happy, but I feel like the sacrifice it would take. And do I really, I see a lot of comics that are very unhappy people deep down mm. yet creating some brilliant stuff and you're like oh i'd love to write that but that comes with a whole load of baggage of loneliness uh, bitterness despair but they're bloody good jokes or i can live the life i'm living and be very grateful and, and see all the good things i've been able to achieve uh, and at times go well if i'd have gone down that route or done that maybe some a different outcome would have happened but essentially i'm content and that's something that I think when we're creating something, we're never quite content. We're never happy with it. But that's the whole idea of creating things. Yeah. And so it's also that thing of the grass is always greener, isn't it? And, um, you know, I, I like this, but I want that over there. You say you're content. Is that something that you've arrived upon uh, only recently or you sort of, have you always been that way inclined? Uh, no, I think, in my career, and when you emailed me, you said, look, talk about your career goals and how you've achieved them and how you found balance. And I think that you've got to lose stuff that you didn't want to lose 
to find a happy place where you go, oh, right. I was getting myself all stressed for, for no good reason. Actually, mm. that didn't bring me happiness. Um, so, so I've learned through losing certain jobs that I struggled. Like, for example, did Radio 1, had no experience doing any radio before. And I was in there uh, learning to drive the desk. Um, Scott Mills taught me in 20 minutes. That was fine. Wow. Best of luck. Enjoy your show. Uh, and I was like, wow, having listeners of a million, great. The, the downside to that is being able to see the text uh, coming through on the computer screen, the monitor, uh, saying that, that, well, I wasn't their cup of tea. Let's put it that way. Right, okay. And so you're dealing with feedback that, that's negative, but you're... But, producer was like, look, you've got a great opportunity or being told all the time, you're in a great opportunity. This is what you want. Do you want this? And you go, I do want it, but not quite feeling ever comfortable with something. Mm. But I strived so hard to like put the time in and uh, try and be better because I didn't want to let go of it. I didn't want to admit defeat that actually it's okay to say it's, it's not, not for everybody doing a radio show. But then I proved when I left there, um, I went and got a job and breakfast radio for 18 months with capital mm-hmm. just to prove that I could do radio. Mm. And I ticked that box off in three months and then lived a miserable 15 months after that. So uh, what's right. the lesson there? I think sometimes you like, I set out a goal and you, you can achieve things, but it's not, it's okay to say that's not quite what you wanted. And then you're given opportunities. You take them as far as you can and uh, it either works out or it doesn't. But in terms of finding what brings me joy, uh, I'm, I'm in a better place to know, actually, it's okay to say, yeah, I could do that, but I don't want to. Mm. Just being able to say no to stuff is where I've found a, a, a better balance and to be happier. That's, I'm, I completely uh, relate to that, the idea of being able to say no, because I've always been like, uh, I don't want to miss out on, on this or that opportunity. Yeah. You know, it's almost... Well, for, uh, speaking from experience, like there's a, there's a slight hint of desperation there. You know, whatever it is, I'll just jump at the opportunity. Whereas now, as you're saying, probably a little bit better equipped as uh, saying no to things, and that actually feels good. Feels good. It feels good yeah. rejecting. You know, rather than it being feels, rejected. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Like I, I think, and maybe people listening will will relate to this. That sometimes the things that you try so hard to make work just cause so much stress in your life. And you don't get it or you do get it, whatever. But the things that, you, that fall in your lap, the opportunities come out of nowhere, mm-hmm. that we feel like, well, I didn't really work for that. I don't deserve yeah. that or that's yeah. too easy. But actually, do you know what I mean? You take opportunities when they come and set yourself goals, but, but be flexible. I think that's one thing I've learned is you've just got to say sometimes, oh, this is, this is great. Enjoy it when it's easy. And when it's hard and you're working for it and you're, you're miserable, is that something really you want? Because the pride when you get there and you've worked really hard and they go, yes, you've got that opportunity now. And then you go, actually, I don't really want it. Was it worth all that stress that you put everyone around you <laughs> under? Um, so sometimes you have to tick those pride uh, goals off, hmm. but learn from them. Otherwise, you will just keep saying yes to stuff. And like I had a gig that I could have made it was going to make me have four hours sleep before I had a presenting job. But I was like, well, there's no stand-up comedy at the moment. I could travel down to Bournemouth. I like Bournemouth. I can make this work. It was 200 pounds. And then there's part of me saying, you're not better than 200 pounds, Tom. Always take work when it's there. You're self-employed. You've got to. 
but I would have been wrecked for the next day record. So actually, I, it was so hard to say, do you know what? I'm not going to be able to drive down there in time and make it back. But thank you so much for the offer. I, was, I had a nicer evening. I was much better the next day. Mm. I think you learn to take care of yourself a bit, a bit better. But, it's, it, but that, that, ag- that agonizing feeling never goes, does it? Sort of the, the toying with the decision you know, should I do this? But I don't know. What if, if I don't do this, maybe they won't invite me back again and all of that. Yeah. But, but I think it's, it's better to, to, to say, look, do you know what? Thank you so much for the offer. I'd love to do the next one. Uh, but please give it to someone else because the worst thing is I've turned up to gigs and not been match fit or, or right. I've turned up for a job and I've not been quite on firing all cylinders. Mm. So they got the worst version anyway, where they could have had the best version. Yeah, that's a so good point. I think opportunities will come round again. Um, how you approach them it, it is key. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, If you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. And you were saying before, when you were in the early on in the Radio One uh, job and you saw this sort of, let's call them nasty messages coming in, negative messages, how, how have you dealt with any kind of negativity or, or, or sort of like, yeah, horrible uh, feedback and so forth, whether it be online or otherwise over your career? Um, I've got better at it. I think that's, that's very true. I think, um, for example... Radio One, Radio One was very tricky in as much as I was never felt like I should be there, but I've got this opportunity. You've got to take it and get better at it. Um, so I wasn't necessarily being myself at times. I was doing what I thought I needed to do to get through. Yeah. And like I said to you before, like the stand up part of my brain would, would answer a call or talk to a caller in a different way, but I'm being the, the Radio One Tom Deacon here talking to this person. So sometimes when the, the, the let's call it critic, uh, critics would come through and say, this is so shit. Who is this? See you next Tuesday. I would be like, they're right. Because I'm not quite being myself. I am not being me. I would have answered that differently. Or I'd interview a pop star who no one particularly cared about. And I'd be really enthusiastic. Oh my God, this is great. This is a fantastic single. And you get people going, this guy's on one. What, what, what is he smoking? This is the worst single ever. And I'd be like, I agree with that person <laughs> and they're digging me out. Mm. So how did I deal with that? I suppose I stopped looking at the messages. That's one way to deal with it. Uh, and at the other time, I was like, I need to be more honest with, with who, who I am putting out there, what I'm putting out there. If I feel proud and, of it and they still don't like it, then fine. Then they can dig, dig it out. That's up to them. But if I'm putting out something that I don't believe in, well, that's when they're right. So um, it's quite, I found that to understand that, look, if I believe in something, then some people aren't going to like it. You've got to deal with that, especially stand-up gigs. That's a very in-the-moment live, how they respond is how they they react to it. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And so so when I did the Rob Brydon show, 
I got my mate to look at Twitter and I said, what, what's the response been? Cause I watched it again. I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. they've cut it like that. Uh, that was the last TV standup I did. Um, and, uh, he said, look, I'll tell you now, two thirds, really positive. One third, they're not your fans. And I was like, and he said, so that's a good, that's a good ratio. That's, that's great. So I suppose if you get affected by the, the, the comments or social media that digs you out, then you're going to be affected in the same way. If someone says you're brilliant, you believe that. So you kind of have to have, be rational about what you believe in. And so therefore what I've learned more than anything is, are you proud of it? Are you happy with it? Like nothing, like if I put a show out or a new joke, it's not, I always know that it can improve. So are you happy in that moment? Did you enjoy it? Mm. Did you find the fun in that? If you did, then, then that's what you have to take away and no one can take away that from you. That's a very healthy attitude. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't mean I don't get pissed off with people though. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the, the you behind closed doors is very different to the you that you the front that you but, put but, on. But very, but just to say, I mean, I've been very fortunate that I haven't had after radio one, that was a shock treatment mm. of, of response. And therefore, cause you're kind of like a mini celeb in some regards where they say radio one and at gigs, I turn up and they go, I didn't think you looked like the way you looked because they've only heard me on air. Okay. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And, uh, so, so then that's fine. But, and a couple of gigs, people would tweet afterwards, but now I live in this kind of happy place where people don't comment on if I'm shit or not. It's a really okay. weird, place. like I'm not doing enough stand up to a wider audience, like, mm. uh, um, kind of like on a TV show or, or doing some sort of channel where people can comment because I'm just doing a live gig. Uh, up and down the country where people there and then enjoy it. And afterwards they'll go, yeah, I thought you were all right, mate. That's the response I get. I don't, right. people don't tend to go to Twitter to, to, to dig me out. So I've been very fortunate that I haven't had to deal with it for a while, but back in the day, that, that's how I tried to deal with it anyway. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and you were at Radio 1, I guess, which was like considered quite a golden era in terms of, you know, all the, the presenters, Chris Moore's in his prime and, did you have much interaction with all those guys? Was I mean, if so, kind of what was the what was the um, general atmosphere like there? Was it full of egos, or was it a sort of a, a nice a nice fun time family? <laughs> it was very fun. The family was great. Uh, it was it was good. Like I mean, there was a, a team photo. There were certain parties that I went to. Like my first Radio One party uh, was out towards Hammersmith, and I was sat with Reggie Yates. And uh, Dan P. Carter, very, very cool guy, does the rock show. Mm. And I sat down there. Oh, and then uh, Ace and Viz from One Extra. And we were sat oh, yeah. in a little group. And uh, they just went, um, well, this party is not as good as last year or the years gone by. And they told me the stories of the parties and the exuberance and the champagne flowing and, oh, wow. and all of this. And you got one drink token when I, when I was there. I was like, <laughs> what? what golden era this is not what I and actually I remember going to the party uh if you can call it that and um it was great like there was some amazing people lovely lovely people that worked there uh but then I went do you know what I checked my watch I was like you know what? I have to go I've got a gig tonight so right okay so that, it meant more to me to go to a gig because I didn't want to okay, miss out yeah. on, on possible gigs uh Chris Moles was my first interaction with him because they'd played an advert out on Radio 1 he just sort of came over and he was like, oh, oh, you're Tom Deacon. Oh, well, your, uh, your, your advert's longer than your show in it. Um, so that was a, a first start, right. but good banter. And I, and I gave some stick back and I think he appreciated that. 
because most people bowed down to him at Radio 1. Fern Cotton was great, really lovely. She always had cake in the studio, so uh, she'd always be like, do you want to come and get some cake? I was like, yes, I do. Edith Bowman was great. Um, Zane Lowe, a lot of time for Zane, loved his show, loved his, uh, his, his <laughs> kind of um, music fascism. Uh, I loved his... Uh, <laughs> everything about it and then going on the zane low verses that's where someone would take on zane you'd pick yeah. five tracks he'd pick five tracks like made it like it, it was very cool and then other people would be more excited than i was but i had to kind of treat them as like i couldn't be in awe of them sure i had to be like oh you're right zane like i had to style it out and go you're right i, I deserve to be here when inside i was like this is mad yeah like, yeah zane low's just invited me in the studio and i can sit in with the guests oh this is mad yeah, it, it, lovely people. Uh, I kind of wanted to be part of their party, you, you know, waiting for the invite. Right. Can I come along to one of your events and stuff? But that didn't happen, but it's, it's all good. And on the, um, on the, on the sort of uh, token of, of um, trying not to, I guess, be intimidated in certain situations, was there anyone that you um, interviewed on your show over the years that you like, whoa, you know, someone that you, you deeply respect and then admired. And if so, how do you sort of hold off the nerves or just, you know, give off an air of confidence throughout? Um, well, you learn how to, to, to fake it, I guess. Um, like I remember me, uh, a couple of times we had Miley Cyrus. It doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but in the teen world, she was huge. Massive, with Miley. Yeah. And I remember going to a press junket where you know, you sit in front of the, the style, you get five minutes tops and you have to ask you questions. Um, so I met her and her dad. So I interviewed her dad, Billy Ray Cyrus first. <laughs> For some reason, I don't know what he thought I asked him, but he, he said, I never hit Miley, which was a really weird <laughs> moment. Uh, so I, I have to live with that. But she was great. She was hilarious. And what, we did a really cool thing once where we went outside. This is the old Radio 1. Um, and there were loads of fans outside waiting for her and we just nabbed one and said oh you you know you'll do so she came it this girl young girl came into the studio and sat next to miley cyrus like her head like we had to scoop it up all the brain matter it was it was blown right and that was very cool we were able to do really cool things and and uh any question you want here's miley she sat next to you any question she just didn't say anything but that was cool like taylor swift like all these u.s artists it was huge Bieber, etc. But I think the the most recent one I had, which was not a radio one, was me in was sitting down next to Thierry Henry on one side of me. For, this was for an Amazon um, FIFA show, and then Robbie Williams on the left hand side of me. It was a very surreal moment where you have to act like you're one of you're one of them, right. but at the same time you have to let their ego know that you respect and appreciate them. And yeah. I've managed to um, annoy Thierry Henry doing a football show that I was hosting a few years back in America. Um, and uh, I really did annoy him quite a lot. And I was there again, luckily I'd forgotten who I was. But I, but I remembered like chatting to Robbie Williams and, and he was really cool. And, and in the interval he went, oh, do you know what, Alex, you're doing such a good job. And I didn't correct him because, you know, that's not what you do. So. Um, yeah, you, you just have to style it out and think about what am I trying to get from them? Can I do this? Um, yeah. But in the same respect, sorry, I'm waffling now. Jonah Hill and uh, stand-up comic uh, Russell... Uh, and? Yeah, that's it. 
I didn't interview him, otherwise I'd remember his name. But the whole premise of my producer said, here are your questions. You need to ask Jonah Hill questions about Russell Brand when mm. it's just me and Jonah Hill in the room. And it was awkward after question two, but I had to persevere. I had to ask the third question because my producer was nodding, sort of doing the hand signal, keep going, keep going. You've got five minutes, get all these questions in. And I felt horrendous, got up, left. And luckily I was heading off to Radio One afterwards. So I walked back. Uh, and he was arriving to do a whole press junket at Radio 1. And as he got out of the car, I remember I just caught him. I said, John, I'm so sorry about asking those five questions about an hour ago. I'm so sorry. And he was just like, hey, dude, it's like, it's fine. But sometimes when you had a job to do, ask questions, you felt like a dick. Yeah. You had to just get through it, do them. And then I apologized afterwards. That, that would be the best way. Part of the job, yeah. And um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about Copper 90. Because so you, I know you were your host there for for many years. The uh, football YouTube channel that must have been an amazing job, right? Going all yeah. over the world, basically hosting yeah. for football matches. How, how did that one come about, and and what was the what was the experience like? Well, um, from work, I think if anything, you know that networking with people. It doesn't mean you have to be, uh, I guess, the phrase brown nosing at times. You just have to be get along with people and, and work with them. And then sometimes they'll remember you because they enjoyed your work or they got on with you. A guy that worked at BBC switch had moved across to copper 90, a guy called Pete. And he, he was just like, mate, you were telling me about a sticker album idea. And I was like, yeah, oddly enough, I'm going up to Edinburgh to do it. Uh, and he went, have you got any thoughts for after Edinburgh? And I was like, well, what I'm going to do is take this sticker album around the world. I had big plans and I'm going to get it signed. Uh, by, by the players. I'm going to go on a bit of a journey, make a YouTube series. And he was like, whoa, 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 hold back. We've got just an idea for a show. I think you'd be perfect for it if that's what you want to do. And that's how it came together um, was I had an idea and they said, we, we won't do that. But what we want to do is something called the Eurofan where you go around supporting different football teams in the Champions League, learn what it is to make that team so special to the fans, become a fan of that team for the one match it'll be great. And we just went on an absolute adventure and loved it. Uh, and then I think most people sort of still remember me from Copper 90. They're like, oh yeah, you used to do Copper 90. So it's oddly enough, the job that people loved, compare that to when people say, your Radio 1 days, your show. Oh shit, but I, I, um, I loved your Copper 90 days. So you create something that really resonates with people you feel a sense of pride because they remember it and that's the thing that they bring up uh and yet i worked so hard to try and make my radio show good <laughs> and yet copper 90 was just essentially me being me dicking about in europe uh mucking around drinking a lot of the time but that was it was perfect people really were like oh i'd love to be in your shoes that's the best job ever and yeah. it, it still was an amazing job do you think that's also partly that all the people, why it was so positively received was because you were in a space that allowed you more to be yourself, you know, and you could get your, your comedic personality across rather than felt like you had to hold back because it wasn't so much of a corporate environment. Yeah, I, I suppose that that's spot on, really. That's the nail on the head. It was, uh, it was definitely me being me. Um, and there were long hours, long shoot days and trying to keep morale up. And, and I love working as part of a team. And I had people, I think even in my comedy, so to speak, when I'm chatting to, to audience members and um, finding the funny at times, th that's what I was doing. I had other people on camera. I was able to bounce off 
other people. Uh, whereas with the radio show, I was just talking to the listener through a microphone and that's quite weird. Yeah, uh, It's a weird experience because you've actually got no one in front of you that you're talking to and yet you've got to pretend you're talking to everyone. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it was, it came very naturally. I was a massive football fan, still am. Uh, and it was, it was just fan, fun. It wasn't really work. Yes, yeah, still, still a Southampton fan. Um, just must be happy with time, them. First time in 32, yeah, 32 years. <laughs> Top of the table. Uh, not anymore, but yeah. But you had yeah, a moment. It, it, you had was, a moment. We did have a moment. They've even made a t-shirt which you can buy online at the Saints store which says, uh, stop the count, which <laughs> about. that's embarrassing. Um, it was a job where it didn't feel like work. So for me, yeah. I felt like I was cheating the system again. Right. Radio One, I was working so hard to try and keep my job. Yeah. Uh, ended up doing a comedy show uh, instead of a regular show that I was doing. So I got comics on and I was thinking, this is, this is more me. Uh, and they said, ah, oh, that's really great, but we're, we're going to call time on that. Whereas Copper 90 was, was very much like, this didn't feel like work. I'm getting paid right. to do this. And yet it was the most loved. So I, I think there's something in that that, you know, you, the most, the, the, when you can have fun and you're not stressing out about stuff all the time, it brings out the best in you. Yeah. And then when you're also able to be in a, an environment where you can be your authentic self, people can connect with that. So especially when you're, in, I guess, when you're in front of camera, you know, with radio, it's, it's slightly different, but you know, when you're in front of camera, there's no hiding. No, no. There's, uh, and 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 a lot of the time it was it was uh, kind of suck it and see like right we're in we're in Dortmund there is nothing to do here uh, we've got eight hours till the game let's think of some stuff to do so creatively we're like always on the spot kind of going oh let's head to here let's head to the stadium we walk round oh I, f- I see a fan I'll go and chat to him cameras rolling let's make some content I- I'd have loved to have seen the outtake sometimes um, <laughs> because the amount that we filmed we didn't stop filming. Um, and to, and, to, and the kind of there was an element of um, uh, kind of trepidation in every show in the first series. I don't have a ticket. How are we going to find a ticket? You got to chat to people. Yeah. We have a translator with us. They would help us get round. And there was a kind of energy to it. And, and yeah, it was it, it was brilliant. Like I'm yeah. talking about it now. I miss it. I, it I sounds like the dream it. job. In jobs like that, where you you know you're doing it for a significant period of time. You obviously build up relationships with people. It all becomes a bit of a you know, family atmosphere. Do you find it hard when that job is over and suddenly all these people you've been spending all this time with, you now sort of, you, you speak every now and then or you, you know, you've, you've completely stopped communication? Definitely. I mean, I uh, haven't been able to. So from BBC Switch days, Radio 1, um, there's very few people that I still, like, meet up with uh, regularly. But there's still people that I, I get in touch with every now and again. Copper 90 days, they've all gone, a lot of the people, my producer has gone on to do a few other bits with other companies. Um, the director and cameraman, brilliant guy, Tom Mellon, he's on uh, Match of the Day Extra now. These are really talented guys that went mm. on to do stuff. Even the presenters as well. So I was in Brazil with doing a show with Maya Jama uh, and uh, she's like like huge star uh, now. And um, we had so much fun the five weeks that we were filming in Brazil for the world cup, but, but they, people do stay in touch, but it does feel like a family. And when they were like, thank you very much. Um, we'll be in touch if we need any more work after that world cup, that that was me done. The Euro fan 
series came to an end. And even now, like it may be, I don't know, it's dying down a little bit, but every three months, someone will comment on my Instagram and say, hey, when's, Cop- when's the Eurofan coming back? And it mm. finished in 2013, wow. just seven years on. Yeah. And yet people are still like, I love that. When I was at school, I was, I, that's the job I wanted. And, and I'm like, I always tweet back at Copper 90, like, yeah, anytime you want, guys, I'm ready. Because it was such a fun, fun job. But things move on. It's a completely different team there. So sometimes I think, I don't know, in my, my career, I realized that nothing lasts forever. So you've got to enjoy it to the max while you can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the nature, I guess, of being in the entertainment industry as well. Is that's this whole stop and start and moving from from job to job. Yeah, it's just just part and parcel of it. I'm, I want to ask you just one one more question related to uh, career stuff. I know you're you're hosting the the F1 esports pro series. Was that just a was that a natural progression from your yeah. your your past jobs, or how did that one come about? And and um, what's the experience been like on that? Because that's sort of you know you're on the cutting edge, mate. <laughs> Yeah, I'm in lockdown mode where I actually had a job still um, because we did the virtual Grand Prix in the proper lockdown. So Mm. you had like the F1 drivers competing with the likes of Stuart Broad and Ben Stokes. It was was mad. Um, uh, It's an incredible experience. Uh, It's made me a better presenter uh, because it's a different... I'm hosting the show with, I mean, proper... There's auto cue. There's... There's not just learn the link, doing walk and talks sort of stuff with a handheld camera. And that came about through someone I knew at university who said, look, do you, are you still presenting? And I was like, yes. Would you like to do esports?" And I, to be honest, I didn't have an idea, the foggiest what that was. Mm. Um, so I was like, sport, I love sport. Uh, <laughs> let's go along. So yeah, we had the Elite Series. It was a Friday. You had Street Fighter, Saturday you had Rocket League, Sunday was Counter-Strike, and then they swapped that with FIFA eventually. So I was hosting uh, this show with games that I've played and mm. enjoyed, and I had, I've gamed all my life. Uh, it's one of the benefits of being an only child. Uh, but um, yeah, not, not esports, and I, and I really learned a lot about the, the, the pro players, what's involved in it. And I loved it. It was a proper presenting job. And a lot of directors were very complimentary, like, oh, you're really good. Like, you take direction well. I was able to deal with issues. If there was, what happens in esports, it can do a lot, is there can be a gameplay issue, which means the host and the analyst will have to fill that time until the the software, the network's up and running again. It it happens a lot. Um, I was happy to fill. Like, that was my job. And it's all back in when I was at BBC Switch. Phil, Tom, you're able to deal with situations. Yeah. Uh, and this time I had an auto cue, so I could just learn to read again. Uh, but <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And then that company, Gfinity, were like, oh, we've been approached to do an F1 esports game. This was four years ago now. And uh, they said, oh, we need a host. And I was standing there thinking, they're going to ask me any minute. And then eventually they still didn't ask me. I went, do you know what? I love F1. And they were like, do you? And I was like, yeah. And I didn't. But I just wanted another job. I wanted another job and I wanted to learn about F1. And then four years on, uh, like that was the first time ever we were at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix doing the first ever competition, actually trackside, mad. Um, and then, yeah, four years on, still doing it. And now the prize pool $750,000. The F1 teams are involved. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I know more about F1 now 
And uh, yeah, I have a massive appreciation for esports. And like you say, I'm on the cusp of something where sometimes I have to explain what it is mm. to people. And other times people are like, that's the coolest thing. That's exactly what I want to do. Uh, I, think, I think the jobs that I do are inspirational for a lot of people coming out of college or university. <laughs> that tends to be the, the jobs that they're like, yeah, I'd like to not work in an office. I want to be a comedian. Uh, I want to travel the world and watching football. And oh, esports is brilliant. It must be so cool. So yeah, I, I'm loving it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been when you can't do stand-up comedy to be able to do something and work still and flex your sort of presenting comedic brain. It's amazing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Great, man. Really great. Um, and I wanted to, to ask you, so when you're not presenting, you're not doing stand-up, obviously I know we're in lockdown, so times are slightly different, but what do you do to, to, to relax and uh, recharge? Uh, what do I do to relax? Well, I tried CBD oil. Um, okay. <laughs> and? Any good? Just taste it. Just taste of olive oil. Um, I, um, <laughs> no, um, gen- generally, what do I try and do? Uh, do you know what? I, th- I think what I've learned from this lockdown is the amount of times I would say yes to gigs and not put enough time in for other people. Okay. And the weird thing about lockdown is I'm forced no gigs yeah. at times to, to be gigging as much as I would have done and traveling the world and Europe and what have you. So I've got more free time to see people, but you can't because you're not allowed. (laughs) So it's taught me how to, I don't know, actually appreciate my girlfriend, actually spend time with her, make, I don't know, try and make plans for the future. But for me, how I relax is I put something else in to look forward to. That's always been my way, whether it's like last October, we went to Vancouver, Seattle. I love NFL. Oh, wow. What was Vancouver like? I've always wanted to go. Ah, incredible. It was incredible. Uh, Such a cool place. Um, And um, the weirdest, we went there, watched ice hockey. Seattle, both both places have a a drug issue for for several different reasons. Seattle has over the highways underneath, they've kind of got mini villages. There's a a big um, opiate sort of issue in Seattle. That's not Mm -hmm. why we went, but we just, we go to places to, see what it's like to live in these places. And, and um, Seattle, very cool, uh, great people. Went to Vancouver, which has um, legal uh, cannabis. And, and uh, we went to a shop, which I can only describe. And I don't know why I'm talking about this, but it was beautiful, Vancouver, right by the, the water. We saw seals eating salmon. <laughs> like, it's such a cool place, beautiful to walk around. And then we went into this one shop. So there's, there's a drug problem in Vancouver and in Seattle. We went in a shop, which is like the Apple store. And you could buy legal weed. And we didn't, but we were just fascinated by, it was like you were asking a sommelier what he would recommend to go with people. It was like the Apple store. You've got. I, mean, I know exactly like what you mean. A, yeah. we, we, I went to, it's called, there's one, I don't know if it's the same one, but the one in California or LA was called Mad Men. Mid Men, I think it was called, and it was exactly laid out like an Apple store. And yeah. somebody came up and was like, "Hello, sir, what kind of high do you want today?" <laughs> yeah, and you're like, um, someone genuinely walked in and says, "We're having friends over on Friday, and I would really like, uh, we're going to have chicken. What would you recommend?" Like, genuinely, that was the the statement made, <laughs> and the person was like, "You want to try the pineapple, blah blah blah," and my mind was blown away. I just thought. Is this, is this the future? Is this the progressive side of Vancouver? So basically what I do 
is on experience parts of the world i i try to do that kind of relaxes me going and be inspired by things talk about things on stage so that's how i tend to relax and try and see people um yeah uh, and yeah i i'm i'm experience led or driven so that i have things to talk about not sit down and write i i'm sort of go and do new things great yeah, I mean, it's it's such a nice like added dimension to have in your life, isn't it? Where if an opportunity to try a new experience comes your way, you know that it can only, even if you might not necessarily want to do it, it can only be of benefit because it creates material. Uh, yeah, it's it, that's what stand-up is it, and presenting I, I, to a certain extent. I've always wanted to make enough money to go traveling and experience new things um, mm. and, you know, meeting a teacher uh, that I've fallen in love with. I didn't choose the teacher first and then work backwards. <laughs> I met the girl first who turns out to be a teacher. But uh, the summer, you know, summer holidays, the half terms, things like that allows that. That's a good balance because I always want to go yeah. and get the cheapest flight somewhere and go, yeah, let's just go to Poland. Lithuania, yeah, yes, please. And then having things to talk about. That's, that's, that's how I relax and that's how I enjoy it. And I love doing European gigs because... They're just really good fun. So that's yeah. how I kind of relax um, apart from watch Southampton and, and NFL. Yeah. Great. Okay. And uh, I don't know if you're a reader or not, but I was going to ask you, have there been any books that you've read over the years that have had a, a big impact on you in any way? Um, I'm looking behind my shoulder now, the cupboard uh, area. Uh, I, I really enjoy Malcolm Gladwell. Um, his, his books are fascinating and um, reading like free economics and just kind of mm. getting a different perspective on things. I really enjoy those sort of books. Um, I guess because there's part of me that's like, I don't read, I Am Pilgrim is a great book, but that hasn't really inspired oh. me. It was just one of those moments where I was on holiday. Uh, brilliant book. You read it? So good. I, 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 same. I was on holiday and I devoured it in like a week. Uh, well, here's the thing, right? I took the book because I was like, that is a hefty book. We've got two weeks away. Uh, in Italy and a place called Montenegro, which uh, is obviously a country and it does, um, a lot of people know about it, but it was pretty cool. Uh, so we had, a, we had a book each. My girlfriend took the smallest, thinnest little book. So after about a couple of days, she was like, oh, are you reading your book? And I'm like, well, yeah, because that's why I brought a book. I've brought one big book to read. So I then gave her my book. I read hers in a couple of days. And then throughout the whole holiday, it was really stressful because I kept looking over her and they're like are you gonna how much more are you gonna read because so we had a bookmark in the book in different places to try and read i am pilgrim together it was stressful but brilliant trying to share a book with someone wow that i've never done that before that's uh and i've never heard anybody else trying to do that at the same time no that's a first uh congratulations yeah uh, thank you very much <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna ask you the uh final question i ask all the guests that come on the podcast what does the idea of balance mean to you or not? What does the idea of balance mean or not? Uh, in terms of how I find balance of what I'm doing all the time, is that, is that what you mean? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it purposely open because everyone has their own interpretation of it. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll wait till the internet gets up to speed. <laughs> um, could you ask me the question? It feels like come up with GCSE again where yeah of course of course you can't give me the answer but you can read me the question again during my exam <laughs> yeah of course what does the idea of balance mean to you or not 
Uh, okay, well, I'll ignore the or not part. <laughs> so I'll decode it. It feels like algebra now. <laughs> the idea of balance to me in my life is letting go a lot of the time. That's how I find balance. Let go of shit. Don't try and fix everything. Uh, and you'll find some sort of happy medium. You'll find that balance. That's what balance means to me a lot of the time. I can get uptight and then I know that I'm not being balanced. Sometimes I could be too relaxed and then I'm not balanced because I'm not working hard enough. And I think in my career and everyday life, the more that I try and work hard at something and I'm unbalanced, then, then I know that I need to just chill out a bit more. So it's, 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 it's a kind of ebb and flow. That's how I see balance in my work life, my personal life, that those moments where I'm not enjoying something, I need to, to sort it out and get back to a balance. Great. Yeah, that's, that's a really great answer. Thank you. Final, final question. Has uh, not- anyone answered not? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had that actually a couple of times. That's, you know, that's the reason why I've, I added in because some people just, you know, they go, yeah, no, don't believe it. I believe you should go all in, all in with your work. It goes back to what you're saying before about, you know, those comed- some comedians and that lifestyle, if you commit to that, that's a that's a lifestyle choice and so yeah there have been there have been people particularly comedians that have have gone down that route if if balance is my goal which i think it is most of the time because i've experienced working really hard to get stuff that doesn't come out doesn't come to fruition and i didn't enjoy that process and other times when i've done nothing and expected something to fall in my lap it hasn't (laughs) so yeah uh tom where can people find out more about you and uh what you're up to uh whatever you found out about me uh for your information would probably be instagram instagram's a, a good good place to go tom deacon comedy um yeah i've have a twitter as well which is oddly enough tom h deacon um because someone had already taken tom deacon comedy uh so uh so yeah uh that's that's where people can find out about me i often post an instagram about what i'm doing um because that's what you're supposed to do. Tell the world what you're doing <laughs> and, and, uh, and go, I'm doing this. Aren't I lucky? So you can find out all about that. Um, and yeah, and like anything that's been mentioned, like Copper 90 Eurofan, go and check it out. It, it might be your cup of tea. Um, and definitely if you like F1 Esports, then yeah. Yeah, social media is the best place. Brilliant. All right, man. Look, thanks so much for your time. It's been great chatting to you. Uh, pleasure. And I look forward to, uh, to listening to uh, the other podcasts, man. And there we have it, Tom Deacon in the building via Zoom. And I think that was the perfect episode for number 50. Can you believe it? 50 episodes. It's a milestone, isn't it? It's a nice milestone because it's it's half of 100. And that means something, doesn't it? 100 signifies 100 episodes and that's that's something i mean they're all just meaningless numbers but i am interpreting it as a momentous occasion and so let's throw a, a tier three party to commemorate this uh this significant event in in all our lives in all seriousness because you know it's, let's let's be serious why am i saying that as if i'm accusing you of not being serious it's it's, it's me who's not being serious it feels quite good it feels quite nice to have had more than anything like 50 really lovely conversations with very inspiring people who are all on different parts of their creative and life journeys and so it's been really nice to 
assemble these these chats and i hope you have enjoyed them as much as i have in partaking in them that did make sense didn't it i think so we'll just say yes i hope to continue i hope we can continue this i'm probably going to have a christmas break not going to lie feeling a bit frazzled in lockdown 2 i i think i said i fucked off to fort aventura to go surfing for a week and i liked it so much i've decided to go back there for the month of january and i've actually changed my flight so i leave in a few weeks time if any of you were wondering where's steve what's happened to steve now you know you know my movements you can follow me there so there's going to be a bit of a break is what i'm saying maybe like a few weeks over you know that christmas period and then we'll revamp it and then we'll do we're not revamp but we'll we'll start again we'll do more episodes because uh i'm i'm getting something out of this i am getting nuggets of gold i'm that that are helping me trying to achieve a more balanced life with, with a bit led with a bit more sanity and joy. I think joy, joy would be the right word. And also, you know, creative and um, work related ideas and inspiration. So, I mean, for that alone, it's worth me continuing to do it. So all that remains to be said is thank you so much to everybody that has listened to any of these episodes, whether it's just one episode or uh, whether it's this rambling monologue, whatever it is, I truly appreciate all your support and words of encouragement and and the messages that I've received throughout this past year of people showing their appreciation of, of of a certain conversation, or even if they've just picked something up, it's truly appreciated and uh, very grateful. So thanks so much, and we'll be back with the next episode when uh when we're ready with it <laughs> until then have a lovely christmas and new year's i might do one more episode next week it's it's not confirmed there might there might be i'm just saying this i'm not you know you know i have issues with commitment so i'm not necessarily committing to it but if i don't have a lovely christmas and new year's and uh see you later Balancing Acts is made in association with the comedy crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 